Hey guys, I have a little bit of business to take care of first. Well, it's not really business. It's just some things around town that I want to tell you about. Um, Recently, I was a tourist in my own town and I did the Ghost of Old Louisville walking tour in downtown Louisville and it was so fun. It was it was really great. Um, Angelique was our guide and she was a wonderful storyteller and I just I highly recommend that everyone do that at some point. Um, it's fun whether you're from Louisville or out of town um, and she said that they're going to try to do tours all year round this year. So just search uh, Ghosts of Old Louisville walking tours. They should come right up and uh, get on their schedule because it's really neat. Uh, that's not what this episode is about. I will, I'll do some Ghosts of Old Louisville at some point here soon. Um, but I just wanted to go ahead and get that out there today. I also want to give a shout out to a local author, uh, Kevin Gibson. He has published several Louisville related books and the most recent one is called This Used to be Louisville. I think it came out in September. Uh, My friend took me to meet him at his book signing. He's super nice. And the book is a great reference for all the history and changes in Louisville. He's done a lot of research. The photos are great. Um, So go buy that book. This used to be Louisville by Kevin Gibson. Okay, now to the nitty gritty. I have a confession to make. I am late to the My Favorite Murder Party. I just started listening maybe a month ago. I like them. They're good storytellers. Um, I don't listen to their banter at the beginning of the episodes. I do fast forward through that. Um, But but they're good storytellers. I I like the stories they tell. Um, And they choose some that may have been overlooked. Uh, So stories that are important to tell and haven't been told enough. And recently I landed on one of their episodes about an unsolved murder about a Louisville, Kentucky native. So, today, I'm going to tell you the story of Alberta Jones and her unsolved murder. Now, if you already listened to the My Favorite Murder episode about this, you should still listen to my version, because this time you'll hear it from a local. And, to be honest, Georgia was not very good at saying Louisville. So, here we go. Alberta Odell Jones was born in Louisville, Kentucky on November 12, 1930. Her mother was Sarah Frances Crawford. She went by Sadie. Her father was Odell Jones. She went to Central High School and then the Louisville Municipal College for Negroes, which merged with the University of Louisville in 1951. She graduated third in her class. In 1956, she became the first African-American to attend UofL's law school before transferring to Howard University School of Law her second year. She graduated fourth in her class this time, then went on to become one of the first black women to pass the Kentucky bar. She was back in her hometown by 1959. She opened a law office in downtown Louisville on West Broadway, which she shared with Daryl Owens, who would go on to become State Representative Daryl Owens. But the city she returned to was deeply segregated. Um, Black people couldn't go to the movies, they couldn't go to restaurants or department stores in Louisville's commercial heart, which was 4th Street back then. Still, her future looked bright. 
especially after what happens next. So guess who Alberta's neighbor was? She, her mother, and her sister lived in the West End, right next door to Cassius Clay. So she ended up negotiating his very first professional flight contract in 1960 with 11 white millionaires, the Louisville Sponsoring Group. Jones insisted that 15% of his earnings be held in a trust until he turned 35, because, you know, 18-year-olds are not great with ginormous sums of money. Um, so she was pretty stern about that. However, uh, Alberta's sister, Miss uh, Flora Shanklin, does remember Jones taking Muhammad Ali to buy a pink Cadillac at Brown Brothers Cadillac. And Shanklin said that later he would take her son and daughter to school in that car, which is really cute. Um, now, I think he actually bought that car for his parents, uh, but he drove it around too. And there are great pictures of him with that car. But... Anyway, from what I understand, even to this day, it's still pretty rare for female lawyers to represent high-profile sports figures. Back then, it was unheard of. But that didn't stop Alberta Jones. By the way, you can see that first contract. It's, uh, it's on display at the Muhammad Ali Center here in Louisville. Now, around that same time, Alberta Jones was becoming an advocate for increased African-American political participation, creating something called the Independent Voters Association, which registered thousands of black people, and it had an impact. Uh, the mayor and several other city officials were voted out in 1961, in part due to this shift in participation. But this, this did not go unnoticed. It was controversial. It upset some people. Um, there was insane racial tension in Louisville in the 60s. The Louisville riots, the race riots, didn't even happen until 1968, okay? So we're talking almost a decade prior. Um, so anyway, here's a, here's a quote about the, uh, the Independent Voters Association. This is from a Medium article that I'll link to on the website. So this association, quote, sought to register black residents as independents in order to leverage their votes as a block to force politicians to commit to civil rights legislation. This was back when neither party had really made a play for the black vote at a national level since Reconstruction. And at the local level, both parties were fairly racist in that liberal, at least were not the KKK sort of way. The group also held seminars where they would literally teach black residents how to vote like literally how to use the voting machines, since most of them had never voted before in their lives. They would rent voting machines and brought them into these classrooms so that people wouldn't feel overwhelmed or discouraged when they saw them at their polling places, which if you think about it, that is so smart. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. Jones was a member of the Eta Zeta chapter of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority, the Fall City Bar Association, the Louisville Bar Association, the American Bar Association, the Urban League, and the NAACP. She participated in the 1963 civil rights marches in Louisville, as well as the March on Washington. 
1964, she was appointed city attorney, and in February of 1965, she was appointed prosecutor for the Domestic Relations Court, the first woman and the first person of color to hold that position. In that role, she was mostly responsible for prosecuting white men for spousal abuse. Alberta Jones was trailblazing. She was at the top of her game, making real change, helping people, shining light on injustice. Which makes what happens next almost unbearable. Now, I read so many articles about about this. Um, There are going to be some variations, some discrepancies in what happens. So I will try to just give you all the different versions of, of what happens here. On the evening of August 4th, 1965, Flora Shanklin, Alberta's sister, remembers Alberta answering a phone call from a friend named Gladys Wickoff, who was either facing or filing a lawsuit regarding beauticians and racial discrimination, I think. Now, another version is that it was something about trying on a wig. The friend wanted her to come over and try on a wig. Either way, the friend was asking Alberta to come over that night, but it was kind of late. And Alberta told her friend there was nothing they they needed to do right at that moment. But then she changed her mind. She didn't want her friend to think she didn't care. So she told Gladys she would come over. Her mother actually offered to go with her. She said she'd be fine on her own. Her sister Flora got up to leave the room, ending what would become their final conversation. Flora says, quote, I left her on the couch reading a magazine about Kennedy getting assassinated. And the last thing I said to her, which still hurts because she sat there and she said, I hope I don't get assassinated. And I said, you don't worry about it. You're not the president of the United States. The morning of the 5th, Alberta's family reported her missing. That same morning, two boys saw a body floating in the Ohio River. Witnesses the night before saw two black males drag a screaming woman near a car that appeared similar to a Ford Fairlane, which was the kind of car Jones was driving while hers was in the shop. The witnesses saw this happening near the Sherman Mitten Bridge, which connects the west end of Louisville to New Albany, Indiana. Other reports say witnesses actually saw three unidentified men tossing a body over the bridge. Later, a body was recovered from the Ohio River near the Old Fountain Ferry Amusement Park. Alberta was still clothed, but her shoes were missing. They were later found near the south exit of the Sherman Mitten on the Shawnee Park Golf Course, and they were later identified by her mother as belonging to Alberta. Her purse wasn't found until three years later, according to a PBS article. It was found hanging on the Sherman Mitten Bridge in near-perfect condition, with her wallet, her ID, a partial dental plate, and several key rings. There was no cash in the wallet. And then, in one report, it says the car was found nearby. Another says it was found miles away. Um, The PBS article says it was found a day later, just blocks away from where her body was found. Regardless, there was blood inside of it. On the rear seat 
the floor of the rear seat and the back of the front seat. Her upper dental plate was found on the rear floor also. The initial investigation by the Louisville police recovered fingerprints and pieces of brick in the car. They collected 30 or more separate pieces of evidence, including a toothpick and a match cover from in or around the car. Now, she had suffered trauma to the face and head, but her official cause of death, as reported on the autopsy, was homicide by drowning. They believed she'd been hit in the head with a brick and then thrown into the river and drowned due to her injuries. According to the Washington Post, while the media speculated she'd been thrown off a bridge, the police actually felt it was more likely she'd been dumped off a boat ramp. Either way, she didn't make it back out of the water that night. Alberta Jones was 34 years old when she was killed. Daryl Owens went to identify her body and he said, quote, it was the worst experience of my life. The police interviewed hundreds of people, uh, but the case quickly grew cold and the number of theories about her death grew. At the time, many felt like it may have been her work that caused her death, that she'd made enemies as a prosecutor. There was a theory that she was the target of a robbery, but her family said she never wore a lot of jewelry, she didn't carry cash. There were also five other unsolved murders of women in the West End that year, and another from the previous October. And that last woman's body was found in the Ohio River, although further down towards Fort Knox. There were theories about her involvement with Muhammad Ali. Uh, Some thought it may have had to do with her being one of the co-trustors on the trust fund that she'd set up for him, the one that he didn't have access to until he was 35, or that she may have been killed so that Elijah Muhammad could access the trust for the Nation of Islam. In fact, there was one detective working the case at the time who was interviewed in the 80s. He said that when he was pursuing this Nation of Islam theory, his wife received some sort of death threat. Although one of the current investigators, Sergeant Owen, says that Nation of Islam theory has never been substantiated. There's no evidence to believe that's what it is. Flora Shanklin, Alberta's sister, believes that it was some sort of hit, that those men witnesses saw were probably hit men getting paid by someone else to do their dirty work. The Courier-Journal published an article in 1966 where they interviewed the acting Sergeant Roy Myers, He said, quote, we still get a lead occasionally. In fact, one of our men is checking out a lead now. Around that time, they did focus in on two men who were suspects. Apparently, there was never enough evidence to charge them with anything, and we don't know anything else about those two. And in the following decade, there are very few stories about Alberta Jones's case in the paper. According to the Medium article, uh, there was an article from the Courier-Journal in 71 that basically reported the case was cold and they'd made no progress. 
something came out in 1978. They wrote a piece about how it was the anniversary of when they had found her purse. So they were maybe trying to revive the story a little bit using that. It's in this 1978 story that they talk about how Gladys Wickoff's story changed a little bit. So that, that detail about why she wanted her to come over changed. So it was either about that discrimination lawsuit or about Alberta trying on a wig. Other than that, though, her story remains the same. Uh, she talks about how they went out to a restaurant where they ate shrimp and drank lemonade in the parking lot. And she does mention that a car of, quote, youths came by and taunted them. And then that same article from 78 also talks about um, how a couple on Magazine Street heard a woman screaming at 2 a.m. that day. Uh, but when they went outside, the screaming stopped. They saw a man pick something up off the street and then get into the car with three other men and drive away. Now here's where things get really interesting. Fast forward to 2008. The FBI gets a hit on one of the prints found inside Jones's rental car. It's a match. Suddenly, this cold case feels like it's about to warm up. Investigators focus in on a man who would have been 17 years old at the time of the murder and living in Louisville. He's still alive and living in California, so they bring him in for a polygraph. And during the test, he denied any involvement in the murder, but, quote, deception was indicated when he was asked about the circumstances surrounding Jones's death. He admitted that he used to hang out in the park with friends one block from where witnesses saw a woman dragged into the back of a car. But he maintained he had nothing to do with it and was eventually cleared as a suspect. When interviewed by Detective Terry Jones, he described himself as a bookworm who had just graduated high school in 1965 and was college-bound. When asked why his print would have been in that car, he told investigators that he used to hitchhike a lot and that he must have been picked up by someone who rented the fair lane before Alberta Jones. After all this, after insisting he never met Alberta Jones, the Courier-Journal actually had an interview with this guy's brother, who told a different story. His brother said, yeah, we both knew Alberta Jones. She was best friends with our pediatrician. So to be clear, this man did get caught in one lie that we could prove. He did know Alberta Jones. Those who are close to the investigation feel like he probably isn't the murderer. He's been described as, quote, meek and harmless. But they think he knows who did it. And so do I. Anyway, prosecutors decided not to pursue the case because they said too many witnesses involved were dead. This turned out to basically be a lie. Uh, many of the witnesses and people involved with investigating the, the case initially, they were still alive and have since been interviewed. Apparently, the police also failed to interview several friends that this suspect mentioned hanging out with, some of whom lived, quote, a stone's throw from 2907 Magazine Street, where witnesses heard a woman scream that night. 
Even worse, apparently most of the evidence collected in this case have been lost, has been lost. Kentucky Commonwealth's attorney, R. David Stengel, wrote a letter to the police chief that said, quote, most of the material witnesses, as well as the original investigators, are dead. A polygraph test is not admissible in court. No blood samples from the scene remain for DNA testing. None of the evidence can be found in the property room, and it cannot be determined where the fingerprint was taken in the car. None of the evidence can be found in the property room? That's startling. In 2016, Dr. Lee Remington, who's been a huge advocate for keeping this case open and active, wrote a letter to LMPD. In it, she wrote, quote, The evidence is now missing. Misplaced? Lost? Thrown away? Destroyed? Where did it go? So they were able to pick up a DNA, DNA match for the prints they submitted way back when, but the rest of the DNA samples are gone which is really a shame since we now know that DNA can stand the test of time and help identify these killers. It's happening all over. Crimes are being solved from decades and decades ago. Anyway, uh, Dr. Remington was able to get the case sent to the FBI to be investigated under the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act in 2017. Now, I want to explain what exactly that means because it's really... It's an important act passed by Congress back in 2016. Now, the late representative, John Lewis, was a co-sponsor, and the act was passed with the goal of making, quote, the deputy chief responsible for investigating and prosecuting violations of criminal civil rights statutes in which the alleged violation occurred before January 1st, 1970, and resulted in death. Okay, so this is actually a reauthorization of a 2007 bill. Uh, it just added several amendments. Um, and John Lewis introduced that first bill, too. And it was passed by a vote of 422 to 2. <laughs> I, I want to talk about this a little more. I think it's important. When I read this, I thought, you know, a bill like that, two people vote against it? Two people. So I had to find out who they were. Um, one of them was Republican Ron Paul from Texas's 14th district. If you're paying attention, yes, that's Ron Paul, as in Rand Paul's dad. Take from that what you will. Uh, so back to the Emmett Till Act. On John Lewis's website, it said that the act, quote, represents a critical opportunity to right these wrongs committed, primarily against African Americans, but also against people of diverse backgrounds. The new amendments aim to attend to the needs of the victims' families and seek out witnesses to unsolved crimes that occurred no later than December 31st, 1979. It was also designed to help increase participation between the FBI, Department of Justice, and state and local law enforcement. Which is important because just in general, not even in racially motivated crimes, but just in general, you hear about so many investigations falling apart from lack of cooperation between these departments. So that is such an important thing to acknowledge and try to improve. Uh, anyway, the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act provides $13 million annually to investigate these 
murders. Sergeant Josh Carr, who works in the Louisville Homicide Unit, has said the Alberta Jones case is still active. In an interview with the Washington Post, he said, quote, Over 50-plus years, that case has been worked by multiple detectives. They're detectives who have worked tirelessly on this case. The case is not closed. In 2018, the FBI added Alberta Jones to their list of cold cases. This case is haunting to me because I think authorities know this guy whose prints they got a match for was involved. I think it's very hard to believe he wasn't in the car that night. He was 17, he was in the area, and that excuse that his print was in there from hitchhiking with the last person who rented that car, that's, it's absurd. His polygraph results indicated he was lying. And then he just happens to have moved across the country to California. But because of mistakes, negligence, and time, there's nothing we can do about it. You know, this this guy is over 70 years old. It's a shame he won't just talk. Now we can only hope that, what, maybe we get a deathbed confession out of him? I, I seriously doubt it. And the public can't put pressure on him because we don't get to know who it is because they were never able to formally charge him with anything. It's just, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, It just makes you feel like now that they have something, um, they could talk to more leads, zone in on who this guy hung out with back then. Someone knows something. And the problem is the clock is ticking because these people are older now. According to a Leo article from August of this year, uh, there is a documentary being made about Alberta's life. It's scheduled to come out sometime in 2022, so be on the lookout for that. Now, I want to end this episode with a couple of quotes. So here's one from Alberta's sister, Flora Shanklin. Quote, Even now, 52 years later, I think sometimes I'm past it, but I'm not. Vengeance is my saith the Lord. There will be a judgment day, and I have to continue to believe that what I've been taught in Sunday school and church is that you pay for what you did, and that I may never know, but the man up above knows. Uh, The co-founder of Humana sat next to Alberta Jones in classes at UofL and had this to say about her. Quote, she was smart and funny and humble. She had a brilliant career ahead of her. It's an incredibly sad story. And finally, when her friend Daryl Owens was asked if Alberta Jones was still alive today, what would she be doing? He replied, raising hell. And that is the story of the unsolved murder of Alberta Jones.